I was talking with Brad Hodge recently, and I told him things have changed. Uh, when I came to Melody Park in the mid-1990s, I'd get up on a sunny morning like this and say, turn to the passage in your Bible. As I've sat out there for these past three years, I've realized things have changed. So here's how it goes. If you have your Bible, turn to John 17, verses 1 to 5. Or look, at, look that up on your iPhone or other smartphone <laughs> that you might have. Brad, look it up on your uh, Kindle Fire or Nook or whatever e-reader e you might have, or on your um, iPad or tablet. And if you don't have any of those things, I guess you're just out of luck. <laughs> whatever you have, turn to John chapter 17. We want to focus our attention on the first five verses of this great prayer. John chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Before we look at this passage together, let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to worship Worship that includes singing and giving and interacting with your word. I pray this morning as we look at this passage that you will challenge us and guide us and instruct us. Father, I pray that these moments we have together, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. You who are a great God and Redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. He was away on business when thieves broke into his home. When those thieves left, they took everything of value from him. Not only did they take his personal possessions, but for some horrific reason, they took the life of his wife, left her on the bedroom floor, assaulted his daughter, and left her in an irreversible coma. Days and weeks and months passed, and there were no leads, and there were no arrests. And this man, as he looked at the city in which he lived, realized that there was a war going on, and that the thieves and the crooks were winning that war. That husband and that father became increasingly discouraged and depressed and angry. He had nothing to live for, a death wish, if you will. And so with that attitude and that outlook at life, he decided to take matters into his own hand. He became, into his own hands, he became a vigilante. He didn't care if he lived or died, but he was certainly going to take some of the bad guys out with him. That was the premise or plot of a film that 
came into theaters in the mid-1970s entitled A Death Wish. Charles Bronson was 53 years old when he played the part of Paul Kersey, the vigilante, in that first film. There would be four sequels that spanned 20 years. By the time number five rolled around, Bronson was 73 years old, not a very intimidating vigilante. But the point of that film is significant. It's our human tendency to get even. What goes around comes around. If you mess with me, I'm going to mess with you. But if you study the idea of vigilantism, what you find is that along the way, things change. And they're gratified by the applause that they get for doing the job that the police can't seem to do. They relish in getting the glory for what they're doing. Jesus stands in stark contrast to that fictional character who came into the world not to destroy people, to kill people, but to save them, to give them life, life abundantly. And in that process... Glorify God. That motivation is clear. That was his passion, his goal, his death wish, if you will, his desire. The glory of God is a theme that runs throughout the Gospels. And it's seen nowhere clearer than in these opening words of the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. He often prayed for his disciples, and he prayed in the presence of his disciples. But here, those disciples are given the opportunity to listen in as Jesus prays this prayer. This is the longest of his prayers that is recorded. And we want to see what is at the heart of the opening five verses. And I think what we're going to see in this paragraph is what it was that shaped and directed the life of Jesus Christ, the greatest life ever lived. And it causes us, I think, I hope, to ask the question is, what do I want to be remembered for? As a believer in Jesus Christ, as a disciple, what what do I want to be remembered for? And I think there are three things that flow out of this passage that are helpful for us in determining what we want to be remembered for as we look at what shaped and motivated the life of Jesus Christ. So let's dig in. John records Jesus' prayer, and he begins with these words, after he said this, after he said these things, maybe in your translation, I think that looks back to what we know as the uproom discourse. You remember that Jesus gathered his disciples together to celebrate the Passover meal with them. And John begins to record that event in John 13. And Jesus meets with his disciples, and they're in the upper room, and there are those dirty feet. (laughs) And no one bothers to get up and to wash feet, so Jesus decides he'll wash those 24 dirty disciple feet. In doing that, he gives them a lesson about what it means to serve. And after that action, after that event, he goes on to teach them the remainder of chapter 15 and 16 and uh, and 13, 14 and 15 and 16. And now he comes to pray. I take it that event is over and they're now on their way 
to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be betrayed by Judas. And along the way, Jesus stops and prays. Notice he looks towards heaven and he prayed. That was the typical Jewish method of praying. We, we have in, a, in our minds that we've got to close our eyes and bow our heads. But the usual pattern for them was to lift their hands with their eyes open, looking into the heavens as they're reaching, almost as if they're reaching for the presence of God. Now, the physical posture is not what's important, but turning the heart to God is. And then the Lord prays. prays. There's a sense of urgency in this prayer. Father, the time has come. It's interesting. This is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Basically, because the, the bulk of the content, Jesus is praying for others. After this introduction, in verse 6 through verse 19, he prays for his disciples. Then in verses 20 to the end of the chapter, he prays for those who will believe in the future. He prays for us. But, but, but I think a better title for this prayer might be the Son's Prayer. I think three or four or five times he addresses his Father in this prayer. And some would suggest that he probably spoke in Aramaic. It would have been Abba, Father. It is the intimate conversation of a son to his father. After he said this, he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Again, this is a theme in the Gospel of John, only in the early parts of the Gospel, it's the time has not come. The time has not come. You may remember the first time that he used these words. It was at the wedding at Cana. Jesus and his disciples went to that wedding and the wine ran out and mom came to Jesus and said, help us out here. We need something. And Jesus says, not time yet. Well, then he was obedient to his mom, but it's not time. It's not time. It's not time. But now it's time. He's on his way to Gethsemane. Within a matter of hours, Judas will betray him. He will go through that bogus trial system, be crucified by Rome. His hour has come. And as you read those words, it's clear that Jesus knew the, the purpose and timing of his ministry. He was not overtaken by some unknown circumstances. Father, the time has come. Notice what he prays for. Not Lord, sustain me. Not God, strengthen me. But God, Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And again, notice the number of times that word glory or glorified is used in this paragraph. Jesus is very concerned about the glory of God. And he comes to this moment of the cross, which is the supreme moment of pain and humiliation. And his concern is for the glory of God. That word glory comes from the Greek word doxadza. It means to show honor, to reveal the character of something or someone. It's the outward expression of God's inherent characteristics and attributes. Jesus would glorify God in his life and in his death. He will reveal many aspects of God's character. 
His power, His holiness, His compassion, His grace, His love. And the list goes on. But, but what's interesting is that here we're not, showing, we're not talking about a person showing the glory of God, but it being displayed at, a, at, at the cross, at a place that the glory of God might be displayed in the cross, in the death of Christ. Father, at the cross, reveal yourself. Reveal who I am. And it's at the cross that we see more than anywhere else the heart of God. Jesus' sacrifice for sin. We see his holiness. We see his hatred of sin. We understand that sin must be judged. But most of all, we see his love and his grace and his mercy. He pays the supreme price for sin. And the paradox of the gospel is, 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 is that the cross is not a place of shame as it was in the Roman Empire. The cross of Christ is a place of glory. Why? Because it's at the cross I come to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is like and what God is like and for all eternity because of the cross. We will glorify him. Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son. Why? So that the son might glorify thee. As you follow the life of Christ in the Gospels, as I mentioned, Jesus lived under a powerful purpose, a passion, we might call it, to glorify God. Someone has written about the great shapers of the world these words. What distinguishes the empire builder from others is their passion. They devote their lives to an idea that in time becomes an ideal. Most importantly, they inspire others to buy into their dream. All are out in one way or another to change the world. Only passions, great passions, can elevate the soul to do great things. Don't misunderstand. The purpose of Jesus Christ in coming into the world was to go to the cross to die for our sins, but his passion in that process, in that purpose, was to glorify God. That is to display God's character, to make him known on the earth, to enhance his reputation among men. He was concerned about what men and women thought about God, his heavenly Father. And again, I want to be clear, Jesus went to the cross to save sinners, but the deeper motivation was the glory of the Father, to reveal who God was, to promote his glory, that you and I might think rightly about him. Because sinners can only think rightly about God when they look at the cross. It's going to Calvary. It's reminding us of the supreme use of life is to glorify God. The supreme goal for Jesus, that work on the cross, was to glorify God. Some of you may come from a liturgical background, a Presbyterian background, so you're familiar with the Westminster Catechism. 
one of his opening statements is, is profound. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the fact of the matter is, when you glorify God, you enjoy him. And when you enjoy him, you glorify him. I don't make this part of my life on a Sunday morning, this next week, this next month, this next year. The Spirit of God prompted Paul to write some penetrating words to the Corinthian believers. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do you notice, notice how broadly he put it? Whether. Whether we are eating or drinking, whether we are serving or suffering, the activities are limitless, but the purpose remains the same, to glorify God. Not only whether, but also whatever. Again, it's as broad as you want to make it. Whatever you are personally, male or female, adult or child, Whatever place you find yourself in, whatever circumstance, seek to glorify God. Chuck Swindoll, commenting on this idea of glorifying God, made three observations I'd like to share with you. How do I do that? He said, first of all, by cultivating the habit of including the Lord God in every aspect of your life. By cultivating the habit of including the Lord God in every area of our lives. Christianity is more than a Sunday morning hour or two hour experience. It is a life lived to glorify God. That ought to permeate every area of our life. Secondly, by refusing to accept or expect or accept any of the glory that belongs to God. Pride can be a blight on his people. And sometimes we're like sponges. We, we soak up that praise and we love the glory. What we ought to be asking is, is God getting the glory in what I'm doing? Thirdly, by maintaining a close relationship with the Lord. By maintaining a close relationship with the Lord. Making Him a, pri- a priority. Making that relationship on this earth a priority. But having said all of that, I realize that it's easy for me to get up here on a Sunday morning or a preacher type to say, you need to glorify God in your lives. But I was riding my bike this week and I was thinking about this. I'm not thinking about glorifying God in every aspect of my life. It's just not the reality of who we are. But hear me. If you're cultivating the habit of making a God a priority in your life, if you're spending time with Him, those things will become part of your life. And whether you're thinking about glorifying God with your life, you will because of that relationship you have with Him in your attitudes and in your actions. It can't help but be a part of your life as you develop that relationship with Him. Now, there are times when you're faced with decisions that you need to ask the question, Will this glorify God? Is this something that will bring honor to His name? Will people see Him through this decision? 
Henry Martin put it like this. I could not endure existence if Jesus Christ were not glorified. It would be hell on earth to me were he always to be dishonored. The primary purpose of the life of Jesus and the primary purpose of the life of his disciple is to glorify him, to honor him, to elevate his reputation in the world. But the second thing that we see flow out of this passage is the primary privilege of life is to serve God. We find that in verses 2 and 3. Notice, for you granted him authority over all people. (laughs) That, That word authority means to have the legal right, the authority, the power, and you might have all flesh in your in your text. Um, it's a Hebrew idiom that means all people or, or mankind. That's an awesome statement for a peasant carpenter who is about to be crucified by Rome. You've given him authority. <laughs> the legal right. And then five times Jesus echoes the words that close out verse 2 that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Jesus refers to believers as those whom the Father has given to him. This is incredibly profound. Did you know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are God's gift to Jesus? John chapter 6, earlier in this gospel, Jesus said these words. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not only to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Verse 2 is all about the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is life giver. The position and purpose of Jesus Christ is to give eternal life to those who God has given to him. He goes to the cross. He goes there to be the life giver to all those that the Father has given to him. He becomes the life giver by laying down his life for others. Remember his words to the disciples in Mark chapter 10, verse 45? For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He calls on his disciples now not to be the life giver, but to serve by pointing people to Jesus, who is the life giver. Look down at verse 18 of John chapter 17. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Then do you remember after his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, the words that are recorded in the last chapter of Matthew? Jesus said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There's the word authority again. Now you go and make disciples. Jesus came into the world with a mission to serve. He sends us into a mission 
into the world with a mission to serve. We are not to be the life giver. We are simply to point men and women, boys and girls, to the life giver who is Jesus. We are called to serve. Back to John chapter 13 and those 24 dirty disciple feet. What is the point of Jesus washing their feet? That you might understand that you are called to serve one another. Later in that chapter, he will say, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, washing those feet. By this all men will know that you are by disciples. We are to serve him by pointing unbelievers to the life giver. We are to serve him by interacting with believers within the church and serving in ministry. And then in chapter, or verse 3, Jesus does something very interesting. He, he has a parenthetical thought about eternal life. And now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. These words make it perfectly clear that eternal life is more than a quantity of time. Oh, it's that for sure. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're born again. And you begin a journey that will last into eternity. But here Jesus said it's more than just a quantity of time. It's a quality of life that, that comes from knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. The word that he uses there for knowing God is an intimate relationship of knowing him. Coming to know who he is and what he's about in the world. This is eternal life that they might know you. No, he's just not knowing about God. It's an intimate relationship in which you know God and that knowledge impacts the way you live life. You see that knowing God means knowing the Son. Because the Son reveals the Father. And I am convinced that a believer in Jesus Christ, the person who comes to faith in Jesus, one of the most important studies that they can embark on is coming to know the great God whom they serve. Understanding his characteristics and his attributes and then taking those things and applying them to their lives. Jeremiah, I don't have a life verse, but if I had one, this would probably be it. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Knowledge of God is what we need. How do we get that? We certainly get it from the Bible, from the Scriptures. And in your notes, I've listed three books that have impacted my life, and I would recommend them. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. A new book by Chip Ingram, God as He Longs for You to See Him. And what I want you to understand is what Jesus is saying here about this business of coming to to him and trusting him and beginning that journey of eternal life is important because it impacts how I serve him. 
I can understand that the greatest privilege is serving him when I know him. I know him as life giver. Tells us to enjoy life. But enjoy life understanding we have a mission. One person, um, Max Keppelman, who is an American diplomat, he wasn't speaking as a diplomat, but he said these words. People grow old by deserting, excuse me, people grow old only by deserting their sense of mission and values. A man or woman is not old until regret takes the place of dreams. People grow old only by deserting their sense of mission and values. A man or woman is not old until regret takes the place of dreams. A believer in Jesus Christ ought never lose their sense of mission. We've been called to the greatest mission in the world. It's to serve God by knowing him and making him known. This, I shouldn't tell you this because somebody will remind me of it sometime. Uh, this year I had a birthday. It was my 73rd. And I want you to hear me. Someone told me a long time ago there's no sliding into home when you get old. And I have dreams. They aren't the dreams of a 30 or a 40 year old man, but I have dreams. Things that I want to accomplish as God gives me life and breath. I enjoy the opportunities to preach here on Sunday morning or in Leveland or in Plainview and to teach on Sunday evenings. And even though I'm retired, I don't do these things as much as I used to. I still want to be engaged and involved. I meet with guys on Tuesday morning for prayer at 6 o'clock down in room 3. 6 o'clock, room 3, guys. We'd love to have you come join us and pray. You know, I realized the greatest thing that Barbara and I can do in our lives at our age is impact our family. I ran across a verse in Proverbs that I want to share with you. Grandchildren are the growing glory of the aged. Parents are the pride of their children. I don't know when I ran across that, but I realized my field are are my grandchildren. We have eight of them. (laughs) And, And... That's who God wants me to impact. That's who God wants me to to help if I can. And and it's as if God understood (laughs) that I was going to use this verse today. I got a call from one of our grandsons yesterday. He's entering North Texas State this fall, and he's trying to make some decisions and think through some things. And he he said, Granddad, can you you help me think? And I said, no, I don't want to do that. (laughs) What a great honor. What a great privilege to serve in that capacity. Well, we need to hurry on. The third thing that comes out of this prayer of Jesus is the primary priority of his life or our life is to obey God. As you read these verses, you realize that Jesus is summing up his life on earth. He looks back at the entirety of his life. He declares that he's glorified God by completing the thing that Jesus or God had entrusted him to do. Here is a man who, in his mid-30s. 
There's so much more that he could do, people that he could meet, those that he could heal. His work was to reveal the Father. And there's so much more that he could do, but his life is done and he knows that it's not nearly, it's not finished as much as it is complete. And there's a difference. We're all going to finish life, but Jesus completed it. Notice verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I ran across an interesting verse in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, a long time ago. It stuck with me. It, It says this, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. You know, that's the only place in all the Bible where it says Jesus learned something. (laughs) He learned obedience by what he suffered. He lived in a 100% obedience to the will of God. He came into the world to die for sinners. And he comes to the end of his life and says, I've done it. I've completed what you gave me to do. Even though it hasn't quite happened yet, it will. You were to look at the life of Jesus because of the number of people he impacted in that small little country where he lived, it would be easy to say, well, he didn't do much. <laughs> I mean, just a small country, didn't reach a lot of people. Those are our standards. The big, 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 the whatever. I completed what God gave me to do. There's something for us to learn in that. To understand the secret of a completed life. To know what God has given us to do and to do it. Because I can glorify God in any area of life he has given me if I understand and act obediently. The Bible says I can glorify God by what I eat and drink. It says I can glorify God by what I do at work, even as a slave, according to Titus 2. Doesn't matter what my job is. I was says I can glorify God by my conduct, ethically and morally. I can glorify God as I praise Him, as I serve, as I'm involved in evangelism, as I raise my children, as I act as a husband or a wife. In all those areas, God has given me something to do, and I need to do what God has given me to do obediently. The issue is not whether I'm successful in human terms, whether I'm known in human terms. The issue is whether I'm obedient to the word and the will of God. And then in verse 5, Jesus returns to the theme of glory. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before, we, you, before the world began. Reminded of those words early in John's Gospel, In the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and being, He was in the beginning with God. As we read verse verse 5 today, that prayer has been answered. He died, He rose again, He ascended into heaven at the right hand of God, and all glory praises Him. I have an opportunity to read Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Praise of God. David Brainerd was one of the giants of American Christianity. 
He lived during the colonial days, and he was a young man who had a burden for the Indians of western Massachusetts. No one had gone to them and shared the gospel, but David Brainerd did. He lived with them for years, and the living was difficult at best. He had a passion to share the gospel with the Indians. As you read Brainerd's gospel, or his journal, it's obvious that he had a deep passion for God and the glory of God. Those who have ever read Brainerd's journals are touched by his life and ministry. He died at the age of 29, his body ravaged by disease that largely was a result of pouring his heart and life those Indians to give them the good news of the gospel. His father-in-law was a preacher named Jonathan Edwards, and he recorded some of Brainerd's thoughts as he was nearing death, and one of them reads this way. Brainerd said, My heaven is to please God and glorify Him, give all to Him and to be wholly devoted to His glory. This is my religion. This is my happiness. I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to give God glory. All my desire is to glorify God. I see nothing else in the world that can yield any satisfaction beside living for God, pleasing Him, and doing His will. David Brainerd's life was short in a quantity of time, but it was remarkably deep in a quality of life. Why? Because he understand the Lord's purpose and passion on earth. And David Brainerd made that his passion and his purpose. As we examine these first five verses of John chapter 17, we are confronted with three things that shaped and directed the life of Jesus Christ. He lived to glorify God. He lived to serve God. He lived to obey God. And that reminds us that the primary purpose of life is to glorify God. The primary privilege of God is to serve him primary priority in life is to obey God. And the reality of it is that when we are busy serving and obeying, we will glorify Him. What men and women think about Jesus Christ has been given into our hands. He has entrusted His glory into our hands. What people think about Him will be seen in our lives. This morning as we stand on the brink of the end of the summer and the beginning of a new school year and a new year of ministry and maybe new jobs or whatever the case, this message is important. My prayer for each of us, whether you're a student or a teacher, is that you will make a priority of your life to glorify God, to enhance His reputation in the classroom. As we minister here at Millie Park, our goal will be to, to serve him, to obey, so that he will be glorified. The primary purpose of life is to glorify him. The primary privilege is to serve him, and the primary priority is to obey him. Some years ago, Tombstone Pizza, the frozen pizza guys, they had a little slogan. What do you want on your tombstone? Of course, they were talking about pepperoni and sausage. You ever thought about that? 
What do you want on your tombstone? I know what I want. He glorified God in his life and in his death. May that be the passion and purpose of each of us. Father, thank you for uh, the chance to share your word this morning. Thank you for Jesus and this prayer. I pray that for each of us we will, uh, maybe this afternoon or this evening or whatever, just spend a few moments thinking about our lives. And um, do, do they glorify you in what we say and what we do in our activities? Is that our primary passion and purpose to enhance your reputation, to glorify you in the way we live our lives? Thank you, Father, for this time of worship. I pray your blessing on the remainder of this, of this day and for the time this evening of uh, fun and fellowship at Joyland. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.